And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Man, I am caffeinated and fired up to give the people what they want. This one's going to be an awesome podcast. All right. Well, you got the caffeine. That's what matters most, is getting that coffee in. The wake-up juice, as we call it around my part, my house. There you go. And you know what you can get, John? For just a just the price of a handful of coffees, what even what you can become part of the scholar program, less than a dollar a day, right? Mm. What do you what do you get that you get access to dozens of courses on every topic from science to psychology to training high schoolers to elite coaches like Canova and others. You get access to the Scholar Clubhouse, which is your essentially communication system with 300 plus other brilliant coaches. It's the digital hangout. It's the place where all the cool kids go. Like, honestly, like that's the best way to frame it, right? The clubhouse is the digital hangout. Got a question? Boom. What's popping? Hey, want to say, hey, I've been trying this new training style. Hey, what's popping? It is so awesome just to like every day wake up and like it's part of my daily like check to see what's going on in the world routine. Like I go to the New York Times, I go to the Washington Post, I go to my local newspaper, I go to the clubhouse, I see what's popping. Exactly. It's it's where it's at. And you know, the best part is every month we then get together on Zoom and discuss, you know, some of those topics that are popping and bring in guest speakers and all sorts of good stuff. So, Oh man, last month was awesome where we just unpacked Mike Smith's coaching model as a case study for what makes a quality and effective coach. And if we all think it's like X's and O's, wins or losses, rah-rah halftime speeches. And no, it's about culture, vibes. It's the you know environment someone creates and how they go about creating it. And again, we used his methods as a case study because we had those awesome Mike Smith tapes, which if you're a Scholar member, you've listened to and downloaded and gotten a new breadth and depth and awareness about why NAU is so tough to beat. Because it's not just altitude, it's not just training, it's the environment Mike and his staff make and continue to, just like the human body, um, you know, uh, improve and upgrade every single day. So if you haven't, I would suggest just become a scholar because this is the cheapest deal on the internet. I mean, it's been a dollar a day for years now, which basically means like if you go back in time five years, it's you know, compare inflation. We're asking you like for a nickel. that's right so best deal on the internet if you want to up your coaching game just just join on in just try it you know try it and you're going to see the value that it brings it literally has more depth of information than anything you can have and then also interaction with other brilliant coaches doing great things to quote mike smith we as coaches need to walk the same streets as the athletes we ask athletes to get better every day how are we as coaches bettering ourselves every day? This is the answer. Exactly. So get on get on board. Okay. Now that we've we've talked about that, it's time to get into this week's topic, which mm, is you the, the new laws of lactate dynamics and its implications for training. <laughs> All right, John, I'm going to set the stage here. So this is what happened. I think it was last week, a couple weeks ago, this wonderful paper comes out called Tracing the Lactate Shuttle to the Mitochondrial Reticulum by George Brooks and colleagues. Mm. 
And George Brooks is a luminary in the exercise physiology world. Yes, he is. That is a giant, that is an OG. <laughs> like if George Brooks drops something, you stop and you read it. Yes. That's right. I remember, I mean, he, he wrote the textbook of all textbooks for grad school. It was like every grad school in exercise physiology read the George Brooks book because it was that in-depth, that good. And I still reference it to this day. But anyway, so what he did is he 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 dropped... He and his colleagues dropped this paper that outlines basically everything we know about lactate. And what it does is it, it synthesizes things that, I, that have kind of been under the surface, that have kind of been bubbling underneath, and just tears it apart. And what do I mean by that is it says, hey, remember all those ideas on lactate being a byproduct or a waste product and causing fatigue or whatever have you, it's all wrong. And it's you a, know why it's all wrong? Because there's always fucking studies on frogs. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Amphibians. Like, well, you were like, oh, and, you know, I love in the paper, sorry to get you off, but it's like, you know, our technological limitations made such data unattainable in that era, like 1920s, 40s, whatever. It's like, just like, but we based all this crap that we know on, the boogeyman of lactate off frogs. <laughs> those, those frogs led us astray. And, and what we're going to do is kind of give you a high level overview of, okay, what does it actually say? And then also change it and say, okay, what does this mean for training? Because as you just mentioned there, it's not only our science was based on this lactate idea, also our training modalities and, and, and theories often for coaching we're based on lactate as being the evil and, you know, byproduct that we need to eliminate, get rid of, minimize. Yeah. I mean, I, I posted this a little while ago in a, a super running uh, blog post, and it's the five common myths about lactic acid and running, right? And the, the five ones that still persist today. One, the burn felt in the leg muscles during fast running is caused by a buildup build of lactic acid. Two, lactic acid provide soreness experience the day after an especially tough workout. Three, lactic acid is a metabolic waste product formed in the muscles during vigorous exercise. Four, lactic acid shows up in the muscles when athletes run to a point of oxygen debt. Five, lactic acid is fatigue during uh, intense running. No, that's right. <laughs> But yet all we, we say, oh, they got the oxygen jet, must be the lactic acid. Like, oh, you're tired. It's that lactic acid that got you. It's like, <sighs> to this day, 2022, and we know they're all wrong. <laughs> yes. No, that's that's very true. Um, <laughs> that's very true. I'm laughing because, like, you talk to people, um, even in schools and undergrad and stuff, and they're still taught this stuff, or physicians, or what have you still taught this stuff, um, especially outside of the exercise physiology or sport world. Even in the sport world, we're often taught this stuff. So, okay, all of those things that you outlined, BS. Well, what does lactate do? And that's where this, that's where this paper is all about. And I'm going to, again, keep it high level and get to the three essential metabolic functions of lactate. Okay. Hmm. This is coming straight from the Burke's paper. It's an energy source. Yep. Preferred a, energy source over yes. glucose in the heart, skeletal yes. muscles, and get ready for this, the brain. 
the brain. It's That's the right. preferred over glucose. Wait, what? I'm just saying. Mm. I'm just saying energy source, right? Mm -hmm. It's a gluconeogenic um, precursor, mm -hmm. which basically means, again, tying back to fuel source. Gluconeogenesis is basically metabolic pathway that results in creation or generation of glucose from non-carbohydrate substrates. So creating glucose fuel that doesn't come straight from a carb. Okay. So lactate can contribute in that way. And then the last part is it's a signaling molecule. Okay. So it has a function to essentially, um, you know, send the message down the stream that say, hey, something is going on. We need to adapt in a specific way. It's a Paul Revere. Hey, the British are coming. The British are coming. Let's get our shit together. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. So in this case, what it does is it, it gives some information, you know, we'll call it to the brain or to the nervous system that says like, hey, there's something a little out of balance here. We've got some substrate. Yeah, essentially fueling issues going on. We've got some like buildup of some other stuff. Like you might want to do something about it or at least be aware of it. And that's, that's what it's doing. So bringing it down pretty simple as we can kind of say it supplies energy and it tells us it's information that tells us like, Hey, you know, something's going on down here in the muscles or cells or what have you. We might want to pay attention. Yes. And I'm just going to read a quick little blurb about this whole uh, glucogenic precursor saying like acknowledging that lactate not pyruvate is the main glucogenic precursor and carbohydrate energy shared at the organism and tissue levels upsets archaic concepts of organization of the organization of intermediary metabolics or metabolism which essentially is like we think pyruvate is the thing and we're like, that's and every textbook copy and paste down and through generations says this is how it happens, right? This glycolytic flux from um, glucose and glycogen uh, is presented in this way. But that's not necessarily it. It's not that straightforward and cut and dry. All right. It's time to come clean here. I believe, I don't remember exactly, but if, if you pick up a copy of Science of Running, you will see this exact thing where pyruvate, again, I simplified it, but it goes pyruvate. And then in the simplification, it goes like either you go to lactate or you go into the cycle, into the, mm -hmm. you know. And what they're saying here is that is not the, like we now know, that is not the way that it occurs. So pyruvate is not the the end product, right? Mm. Um, I call it I the, think, uh, the creating the correction of the lactate pyruvate affair. <laughs> I just love right. this paper. This paper is so good. <laughs> so... So I think this is really important. And I think, again, you know, if you're a listener, you're like, oh, what does it, what does it matter? What does it matter? Well, again, what it tells us is that, you know, the way that we thought going from, let's see, glycogen to, we'll call, still still call it like aerobic utilization or uh, energy production. We thought it went straight through this pyruvate thing. And then lactate was this kind of side product, byproduct, whatever you want to call it as. But that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So that, that changes some things. What, what does it change? A, it tells us, again, that lactate is more important as a fuel source and as a kind of shuttling mechanism that can be 
taken into, we'll call it essentially the cell and utilized, you know, aerobically. Which... Yes, and that's and that's the key thing. The shuttling, right, is happening all the time, not yes. just during cardiovascular or endurance activity. And this is concept that we have these producer or driver cells, right, that are in the skeletal muscles. And then these consumer recipient cells that are actually in the brain, the heart, the muscle, the liver, the kidney. So lactate, as we know, can be exchanged between both white and red fibers within a muscle belly and bed and between the uh, astrocytes and neurons in the brain. So what this means is like if you're building up lactate somewhere through intense activity, if you have the ability to receive and consume it as fuel elsewhere, it's this brilliant recycling system where the body's like, great, you built up this thing. We're going to take it and put it over here. and we use it as energy. Thank you very much. Off we go. Like, <laughs> it's it, awesome. Yeah, it's essentially. So here's how I want you to think about it, listeners. It's like this. It's like saying, you know, let's say John and I live down the street from each other and all of a sudden, like we both got our gardens and I've got a garden and I'm just producing so many strawberries for whatever reason. Like instead of being like, oh, my gosh, we have to consume only strawberries. We say I've got overabundance. Yeah, I'm just I'm just going to walk these down to John, who doesn't have any strawberries, and he's going to eat some of these. Right. And this is what lactate has actually done. And the brilliant thing. OK, why is this important? Well, think about it. So. If we produce lactate in our fast twitch fibers, for example, we can then shuttle that if there's shuttle that in the bloodstream and then send it to maybe, you know, slow twitch fibers to utilize that as fuel or vice versa on, on, on this stuff. If we have a muscle that is running low, let's say on fuel or energy or what have you, Lactate is one of the sources that it can take up and say, oh, here's some fuel use for you. Like, don't fatigue as quickly or as much. So, again, it's this wonderful mechanism of, of essentially sharing the load and sharing the energy source load so that we can keep going and, res and resist fatigue for longer. And I think, oh, okay, what does this mean from a training standpoint? Well, it means the better we're able to develop this delivery system. Because, again, they call it lactate shuttle for a reason. Again, delivery system. But when you're delivering something, you have to essentially take it out, put it in the bloodstream, send it down the bloodstream, send it to another muscle or send it adjacent to another muscle or send it to the brain, what have you. Then in the muscular muscle, you have to go through... The, the membrane to get into the cell and then through the cycle to be utilized as energy. So what we know is if we can make it more efficient in terms of saying, you know what, again, to use the example, instead of me just hand carrying in my hands to John all these strawberries, I get a bigger bucket. Then all of a sudden I can give him more energy easier, right? And that's what we're doing when it comes turn to the lactate shuttle, because at every step we have these transporters, which is essentially are like the bucket and say, oh, you know what? Lactate's at the door. I've got a big bucket. Like, come, come on in. Unless we don't have this trained and we're not used to it and they say, oh, you know what? 
I can only carry what's in my hand. Like, sorry, we're going to have to go through this door very slowly and make it a very laborious process. Therefore, we're not taking this energy that is readily available um, for us to utilize in muscles that, that desperately need it. Yeah, and that's, I think, we often like the simple narrative when you're like, well, what about hitting the wall and this like glycogen and you lose all this glycogen? And, you know, I, we've told that story and interpreted um, phenomena with the information and data we had and awareness we had at the time. But that's always the thing I love about science is we have to remember it's always provisional. So how we interpret phenomena is based only on the available means and awarenesses we have at our disposal. And that's, you know, when I was the talking earlier about the frogs, this is how the paper frames that, right? Is longstanding ideas on the role of lactate in physiology originated on the basis of incomplete data on isolated, non-perfuse, non-oxygenated amphibian muscles made to contract continually in ways that was not intended by nature. And so we often do this, and it's just like side of tangent. We have this kind of Frankenstein reductionist approach where we look at things in isolation. And I love how there's like to made to contract continuities in ways not intended by nature, where we go, oh, this is how it works, but it's not the way that nature intended it to fit in the entire holistic organism or ecosystem. And we always have to think and reorient from a reductionist approach to an ecosystem approach. And it's tougher because we have to take in, uh, you know, it's multifactorial with multiple inputs, but it's how the body operates, right? It's how the body moves. This idea that bone moves muscle, right? And it, or muscle moves bone, that if you do a bicep curl, it's the, you know, the biceps that are, you know, doing all the work. And it's this like very uh, rudimentary and, you know, naive view of it just being a simple, you know, third class lever like this, and that's it. And it's like, no, the uh, tensegrity of the body, the pressure that's being felt somewhere is going to create pressure elsewhere. It's going to create all this shift in the fascias included and all this stuff. And the hard part is we have these technological limitations of our old way of understanding the body. And now we're getting new and new, new and better um, data because we've expanded our capacity to like, say, especially with lactate dynamics, right? Look at things in vivo and especially with the, um, you know, fascia and the um, connect chain and things like that. We can now look at it in vivo actually in a living organism versus this kind of like trying to deduce from a carcass that is static and dead what's happening. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a, a, a good way of putting it. One other thing that I wanted to talk about this is the signaling mechanism that we mentioned that the paper briefly talks about, which is important, is that lactate most likely, again, there's some some wiggle room on, on studies here, but the, the, the data out so far on recording this paper is that lactate can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. Which so is huge. Yes. Mitochondria creation, essentially development, all that, all that, uh, all that stuff is what we're looking at. And if you know anything about endurance physiology and understanding is that the, that is what we're often after. That's the golden goose right there, baby. Endurance development, like (laughs) more mitochondria, more energy production, able to withstand fatigue, all that stuff. And it's interesting here. And the idea is that lactate um, acts as a signal based on um, what we call reactive oxygen species. 
uh, and and um, and some other things. But essentially, it's saying, you know, I'll simplify it, and it says like, oh crap, like. <laughs> We need more mitochondria to handle this stuff because our reactive oxygen species, other things are kind of running a little bit wild here. And the lactate kind of sends that that signal of development. So what this means in terms of training is that normally we think of mitochondria development as like easy and all that stuff. But what that this is saying is that there's also a signaling mechanism related to increases in lactate, mm-hmm. which tell us that we need to have a variety of kind of lactate stimuli to increase our aerobic abilities, right? Mm-hmm. So it gives notion for training, again, yes, at threshold, but also doing stuff where we're going a little over threshold and all this stuff. Again, I'm making a jump from the paper as this hasn't. Yes, I would like to introduce people to flux training stage right. (laughs) 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 This is why it's golden, man. I mean, I was telling Steve, like, in the in the paper, they talk about lactate flux, right? Here's, you know, the reticulum lowers cellular lactate by oxidative disposal, thus acting to develop the concentration gradients necessary for lactate fluxes across organ, tissue, and cellular compartments. It's like, man, I wish we were that smart to say we coined the term flux training for this kind of, you know, polarized alternation surge, you know, spike, shift down, spike up, or shift up, shift down training that we've been talking about based off this, but it's convenient that it works like that because it's science. It's like, oh, this is nice that they use the exact same verbiage of flux that we have given to this style of training and why it's so important. Exactly. You know, we're, we'll just chalk it up to our genius. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But when we start and think about that, right, there's, you know, that is the name of the game, mitochondrial biogenesis and efficacy. So making sure there's a big population of them and making sure they work well. And that's why like this stimulation is so important because now that we know that lactate is fuel and we can get more energy if we create more lactate in a certain cell area, and then it can be shuttled across different membranes to other muscles that are working so you can offload it. That's again, why it's so, so, so valuable and important to have this understanding because if we can internally create, if we can self-create this own fuel <laughs> without the need to draw on stored fuel that is not like glycogen able to be, um, you know, recreated without consumption of something outside carbohydrate. Well, why don't we just do more of that where it's just a beautiful self-sustaining mechanism, right? But in order to get there, we got to understand how we can create that, right? And that's where high intensity training and high volume training both play a role and this fluctuation training in this mitochondria biogenesis development, right? Because there's two different, um, you know, as they say, enzyme signalings or master switches in the high volume, what we consider like that zone two training that is the typical steady state, that aerobic threshold, blah, blah, blah. That's like uh, the enzyme is uh, CA or calcium MK, CAMK is the precursor to create the master switch for that bio- uh, mitochondrial biogenesis. And then in high intensity work, right, it's uh, AMPK is a different enzyme, but it, 
it, it, that's the beauty of the body and why I love it so much. It has multiple pathways to accomplish the same objective. Right. So this is what <laughs> I want to really drill into to the listeners is that what we're saying is not one way is better or not. We're saying there are multiple pathways yes. to get to the golden goose of mitochondrial uh, biogenesis. It's multiple pathways. And so what does that mean to you as a coach is you need to, you have these two different ways, essentially, and you need to be able to utilize both to maximize like that development. So what we're trying to say here, and I love, I'm going to pull off this, pull this quote from the paper um, because they, they get at what we're talking about. They say studies on the possibility of exercise above the lactate threshold where there is a disproportionate increase in muscle lactate production, activating a signaling cascade leading to human skeletal muscle mitochondrial biogenesis are underway. Hmm. Okay, so what does that mean is like they have the same thought, again, not proven yet, but... They're saying, you know, we got the same thought as this is a, this is a signaling mechanism. Let's study this to see if that happens or if, or to what degree that happens and occurs and all that stuff. And what we're saying as coaches is saying, hey, you got to do the easy stuff. You also got to look at lactate not as being something to be scared of or controlled of, but as a stimulus that signals, hey, we've got to adapt in this direction as well. And I think this really gets at, again, you can see good coaches do this, but this really gets at why flux training works, it really good set, how in the world Igloy developed aerobic ability off of interval training, et cetera, et cetera, is there are multiple pathways to get there. And to me, the answer always is, well, Utilize both in the right degree. And let me give you an example to take away. So what does this, this have to do with our coaching? Well, think about it like this. If I've got a 800 meter runner who maybe is injury prone or whatever, or has a lot of speed, this is telling me like, yes, there needs to be some easy aerobic training, but I can go through this other pathway with a little bit of lactate, with a little bit faster work, with a little bit less volume, and still get that mitochondrial development um, in a different way without doing maybe the long run or the long volume, et cetera, et cetera, that might be his or her preferential way to develop aerobically. I didn't say only way, but I might say the preferential way to develop aerobically because it meets their physiology where they're at a little bit better versus maybe the Peter Snell approach to developing aerobically for 800 runner, which was a hell of a lot of volume. So, so yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Is like we tend to get locked in with paradigms or examples that work. Like Peter Snell did it this way. So that's the way. And then you have these people who are like, I'm a high mileage guy and I'm a high mileage coach. And it's like, you don't have to be if you understand the mechanisms. You can be if that is what is important. And here's the concept, right? We know that high mileage, right, as Mike Smith called it in the Mike Smith tapes, has a threat to mechanics, right? You're going through incomplete ranges of motion in the joints. What happens there is really interesting with joint loading, in, uh, connective tissue and fascia. If the only way that those things, which are avascular, get nourishment is through load. So if you don't go through a full range of motion in joint tissue and capsule tissue and all that stuff, 
it doesn't get nourishment. It starts to atrophy. And so if you're only doing long, slow, steady running, which is an incomplete range of motion in, say, the hip joint or what have you, it's starting to decline because it's not getting nourishment. But if you start sprinting, if you start deep squatting, if you do these other activities at an intensity, you can then couple both the benefits of saying, if I have the right protocol, say flex training involved, I can get this mitochondrial metabolic uh, stimulus and feedback, and I can get this nourishment for the uh, cartilage, avascular, not not cardiovascular tissue that is so important to my global health, which we just you know offload and call generally connective tissue or fascia. That's awesome. That's amazing. Instead of just being like the only way to do this is you got to run 90 minutes to two hours every day and it has to be slow. And that's the only way we can get this. That is, it, it alleviates that burden, which is, oh, warms my heart. <laughs> yes, exactly. So what we're, what we're getting at is there's two different ways. There's different ways to get this. And I think the other thing that, that matters here as we take it into coaching is, okay, what's the other important here is think about it in terms of, well, how well, what, how would I develop this ability to, as the analogy I use, get a bigger basket to get, carry strawberries or your fruit or vegetables to John's house? Well, the answer here is pretty simple as we go back to kind of some of that work we just talked about or have talked about in the past in terms of flux training is what you're doing is when you're pulsing, right? The Throw a little lactate into the system, bring it back down so that we can deal with it. Throw a little lactate into the system, bring it back down a little bit so we can deal with it. What you're doing there is developing some of those delivery mechanisms or acceptive mechanisms because you're not sitting there with, let's say, I'm going to ride at a steady lactate or run at a steady lactate or run at a lactate that's steadily increasing and saying like, hey, John, I keep knocking on the door. Why don't you keep answering? What you're doing is you're knocking on the door, to use the analogy, and then saying, here, John, take some in. And then you're running back to your house and getting some more during the, the kind of break to give John the ability to uh, to take in more. And what that does, and we know this a little bit from through uh, some of the studies on uh, monocarboxylate transporters, I think it is, um, MCTs, all that good stuff, mm-hmm. if you want to read into it. Um, what we know is that kind of that 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 flux training like really can develop some of those um some of those mechanisms and transporters and all that good stuff um at least theoretically again no one's tested flux training exactly in this way but it makes sense from a theory standpoint so what i would say as a coach is if you're just using traditional lactate threshold work where you go run four miles at the steady pace and what have you this idea might be an indicator of, hmm, maybe I need to add some flux training in there to go above and below, above and below. Um, so consider adding that into your program as, again, not replacing your threshold work, but as adding into it as another development piece where you're stressing the, the body in a different way so that it can develop some of these mechanisms and capacities related to, related to this lactate shuttling effect. 
Yeah, it's it's like teaching or learning, right? We constantly think of the golden standard of say a 5k workouts to be four by a mile at 5k pace or what have you, right? Five by a mile at that, six by whatever. And it's like we have this idea where we want to just go even pace throughout the whole thing because some lab coat somewhere sometimes said that's the best way to do it is even pace. And it's like, well, no, it is at the end. It is it is in performance, perhaps. It's the easiest load loading strategy on race day. However, the scaffolding, the precursor, the uh, capacity needs to be built first. And the way we do that is by dumping a bunch in and then, you know, off and then backing off so the body can figure out where to then um, shuttle it, right? Because if you don't have the mechanisms in place organically, which none of us do, to create this propensity and to create this, um, you know, a prefer prefer preference for lactate to shuttle and be this fuel source, it's already existed, but it has to get from point A to point B. The start, Steve has to figure out how to walk down the street, right? And if the bucket's too heavy, he can't walk down. But if he's stronger, he can walk down with a big bucket. And that's the concept. It's just like anything in development and um, adaptation and training is like we have to start off from where we're at. So what does that mean in practice? Well, rather than saying, okay, we're going to do mile repeats, you can still do mile repeat distance, but within them, flux it where it's like, all right, we're going to do 200 at the desired race or race pace or race effort. And then we're going to do... 200 or even 400 or even 600, depending on the current fitness of the athlete. I mean, I've at the high school level, I've had athletes do 200 up, you know, spike flux and then 200 like downshift. Um, but I've also had them start off like, you know, 200 up and then spike all the uh, for the spike and then shift down to 600 or 800. Right. I mean, and it's like, am I getting any benefit out of this coach? I go, yeah, it's like, we're laying the found the groundwork. We're giving the opportunity for the body to be aware that these bigger signals are coming, or we can step off the gas, so to speak, and flux down and give you a longer period while running. It doesn't have to be continuous either. Right. And that's the beauty of these kind of like cruise miles that Daniel put forth. And this concept of the anaerobic threshold is, we want that work to be its greatest volume because that's the greatest stimulant, but that work also needs to be non-continuous. So it's like run a mile and then takes 90 seconds break versus the aerobic threshold, which is a little lower, um, you know, uh, pace or speed that can be done as continuous. Sure. But we often get caught up in this continuous mindset where, it, you know, again, Lillard famously put that idea forward, like, Hey, we don't need to do intervals. We can do continuous running. And then we took it as a, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I was like, no, we actually now can do both and both have value. And programs like, say, Dillinger and Oregon back in the 70s and 80s took advantage of this and said, if you look at what they're doing in training, they're essentially getting this lactate shuttling effect every damn day, but in different ways with different intensities and different rest periods and different work our uh, you know, train constructions. And it's like, Oh, that's so smart. <laughs> yeah. You know what it is, is normally these guys figure it out, you know, coaches, good coaches are, are ahead of the science. And that's what I kind of love about it. Actually, if you look at, um, Canova, for example, oh, and yeah. espe especially in the distance work, but also in the marathon, he was, gosh over a decade ago talking about yes 
hey mm. guys, like we've got to train the ability to utilize lactate as a fuel, especially late in the marathon. And and I thought this was brilliant because he realized that again, lactate like is utilized as 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 a fuel. Um, and in the marathon, in an event where, you know, we are limited based on our stores, but also how much we can take in at any time, he's like, well, let's recycle this, this chunk so that we can utilize it and, and, and keep us, keep our energy able to keep it high. So that's why if you look at Canova's marathon training, what you often see is, you know, he called them alternations instead of flux, but you see a lot of alternations in marathon training, even long alternations. We're talking about like, you know, run 3K at um, a little faster than maybe half marathon pace and then 1K or 2K or whatever at, at just slower and stuff like that. And then even alternations and even pace variations within that stuff. Even within his easy days, he would again, call it variation of pace where athletes would sometimes throw in hard 30 second surges with, you know, a good bit of time in between. But his idea was, well, I need to teach them how to throw a little bit of lactate or whatever in the system and then like have their body learn how to deal with it because he knew that, or he hypothesized that like if we could teach athletes to utilize this lactate as an energy source, that's going to help them, um, especially in the marathon. Yeah, I mean, that that aligns too with, uh, you know, Claus Locke's easy interval method where it's like every day he's like, yeah, just even your easy runs, pick it up for 30 seconds to a minute, run fast at like 5K effort. And then, yeah, run easy for five, six minutes. Or this idea of why fartlicks originally worked, right? It's this whole idea of this constant exposure. But yeah, we get so locked into like, this easy pace needs to be this, this pace needs to be that. We need to be in this zone all the time. And if we deviate from this zone, watch out, bad things will happen. And it's like, no, the body loves variability. Now, how much variability is, you know, that's the craft of coaching when and where to apply it. But a little micro spike here and there on a daily basis can have value for marathoners. And it's often why a lot of marathoners get worse when they stop training for 5k and 10k and they just focus all their chips on this endurance focused steady state running just for the marathon but if you're also training for the 5k and 10k and running that it's going to make you a better marathoner and it's really hard because we've gotten such hyper specialization but the, it, it's very simple to look at this like when frank shorter won the olympic gold medal what other event did he run at the Olympics, Steve? He ran the 10K. He ran it, and you know what? He ran it before the marathon. <laughs> he ran a, the rounds of the 10K, the final, and then he ran the marathon. So he was training for the, it wasn't seen as an either or, it was seen correctly as a compliment. We have now made it an either or proposition, which, you know, I don't think is wise. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as I think that often, um, Often when, when we go away from the speed or go afraid from that stuff for too long is that it it kind of can backfire. And you see this in some marathoners where they kind of get stuck or stagnate 
if they just go marathon, marathon, marathon after a while. And even those who do lots of marathons, what I've, I've noticed in my own coaching and then talking with others is they have these cycles where they're like, okay, we gotta, we gotta rebuild or remember what it's like to be a 10 K athlete or five K athlete or what have you. Um, because if you don't, you kind of lose that again, that alternate stimulus for this adapt adaptation and growth. Um, which can help you, especially from a lactate fueling or utilization standpoint. Right. Because now we know there's multiple pathways to get this. So why are we choosing electing to ignore one pathway at the, you know, um, uh, benefit of another? And it's like the body needs always it comes back to balance, right? We always preach the middle path. We always say we need to figure out how to create balance. And, so, and you know, balance is not about uh, equity or equality of stimulus. It's about the correct proportions, like ingredients in, you know, anything. If you have no sugar, the cake's going to suck. If everything else is, it, you know, is there, it can be the perfect fluffiness and whatever, but if it's not sweet, everyone's gonna like, this is just bleh, not good. <laughs> it's the same deal, right? Yeah, exactly. It really is. It's that, that balance idea because, you know, it is like baking a cake where you need the certain ingredients in the right place and you can have all the ingredients, but if you don't put them in the right amounts and orders, you're kind of messed up. And what we're trying to tell you in this kind of, okay, how does this, this research, et cetera, is it tells you like, Hey, this is a vital ingredient that works in a way that, you know, um, goes against maybe what you were taught at your, coaches education or what have you, which was often to avoid lactate even. And what I would say too, is even on, um, even if you look at some of the training, let's say by the, the Ingerbritsons, which is very popular, um, and their training system is, is good, all that good stuff, lots to learn there, but like they often obsessively or are seen to obsessively control lactate levels because that's kind of the, ideas that we say like oh okay we're going to control lactate levels so that we're in this zone this zone is this zone but that idea often misses the picture in the sense that that lactate in the blood number just reflects that balance equation of not really telling us how much we're producing but it's telling us the balance between production and and taking it up and that can be useful but I think we overgeneralize when we say, okay, we can't go over two millimoles for this workout or this race or what have you, as if there's some magic, you know, um, um, breaking point, which again, there, there isn't. Sometimes it just needs to be a dumpster fire, right? And the body needs to figure it out. Like just put them in a street fight and see what happens. And that's what I always talk about with workouts being messy. Like you need to expose people to create, again, going through that super compensation cycle, you need to have that alarm that creates, as Steve likes to say, the embarrassment of the body or the system. Without the embarrassment and the messiness, you don't get then the signalings to create this adaptation or reconstruction provided the post-alarm period of recovery is adequate, right? And that reconstruction period is adequate. We are really, really good at what, you know, I like to call the transient impacts of training. What's happening right now, either, you know, in, acutely within the, the workout itself or immediate right after the workout. And we're talking zero to 96 hours, right? We're really bad at assessing and understanding and giving the um, awareness to and respect to 
the adaptive upgrades, and that, those are the delayed effects. What's going to happen four days to 21 plus days after, right? Because we love immediate. We, oh, it hurts, hurts, it's tough, it's blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you just got to understand, like, this is how the, the body's working concurrently on two adaptive time horizons right now and then further down the road. And it's why chronic uh, habituation and, and, and uh, re repeating of a workout or a stimulus or a set of alarms creates this supercompensation over time. But a lot of times, like I'll see it and people talk about the supercompensation cycle as if it's happening only within an acute period of time being zero to like seven days. And it's like, yeah, there is that, but there also is the chronic compensation that we need to be aware of. And this is how the brain, the bodies, the cells, the organism works is this chronic exposure over time creates this robustness as an anti-fragility. And essentially, if you're only trying to, you know, expose the body, expose the athlete to an overabundance or just underabundance of lactate and make things nice and neat, they don't really get that embarrassment that then creates this long-term adaptive up that can stimulate this long-term adaptive upgrade because the body needs to be told you aren't adequate to get better. And the only way that we do that is through, you know, the sea god workouts, the dumpster fire workouts, or workouts where you're just redlining the whole time and it's grind. And they don't need to be in the menu, the training menu, week in and week out. You know, I honestly think like you maybe have, like we've talked about, you have one bolt a week. And as we age, it might be one every 10 days. But it's just enough of a signal that then you have all this other supportive work. And that's why I love flux training so much is you can manipulate it to be supportive as well versus as um, being just solely the alarm. And a lot of times, right, even, you know, talking with Mike Smith, we have this idea where the fast needs to get faster. But with flux training, the fast stays fast or the spike, your race pace work. And what you're doing is the supportive mechanism, the aerobic mechanism, the the downshift, the steady, the slow, whatever you want to call it, that's actually the thing you're trying to elevate because of that elevation signals that you have a better utilization, better efficiency of um, lactate shuttling and energy production because you don't need to slow down as much to allow the body that reprieve from this high production in these key cells or areas of the body where we're creating this overabundance of lactate to then shuttle. It's able to do it better on the fly in the moment versus saying, oh, back off. I got to figure out someplace to like transport and put this. I don't know yet. I'm figuring out, I'm going, you know, it's like essentially if we're using Steve's strawberry analogy, it's like Steve going door to door and be like, hey, do you want strawberries? Hey, do you want strawberries? Hey, do you want strawberries? And places like, no, okay, I'll take a few. No, and then like he comes to John's house, like, yes, give me them all. They're like, oh, I found a source, a place that I can shuttle all these strawberries to and I'm going to go there. <laughs> Man, we have really taken this analogy to the full length. I, I have, love it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start creating a, a training paradigm program based on strawberry delivery. Um, uh, but it, it really it, high source in vitamin C, by the way, which is good for a lot of other things as well. There, there you go. We're, we're feeding, feeding, uh, feeding the system. That's but I right. Think, I think, I think you're right. And that's how I kind of look at this stuff is like, we need to, you know, if I was to step back and to kind of summarize this is the body is always, we like to simplify it and for good reason to simplify it, to make it usable, useful. But I think we can also be a danger in too, in simplifying too far 
and that we we now have a model that isn't close to correct and we start making assumptions and training decisions based on a model that sometimes gets us in the way. And what I would suggest if you're listening and you're hearing John and I, and you're like, okay, this all sounds interesting, but complex is like, go take a look at the paper. You're not going to understand all of it, but I think, you know, unless you have a background in science, maybe, but um, I think what you'll do is you'll pick away and you'll understand, okay, like some of these simple ideas of, well, this is a stimulus because I go over this threshold or do this thing or run in this zone. Like that's a little too simplistic on the comp- complexity of the body. And the, the, the answer isn't to shrug our shoulders and be like, oh, the body's so complex. It's, just, it's to realize and almost free yourself up and say, oh, okay, I need a variety of stimuli to get at a bunch of these different things. And a variety of stimuli in the right dose, but maybe I can branch out and get beyond just the the simple ideas of, okay, I'm going to do my lactate threshold work at this pace and then this zone. And I'm going to do my easy runs at this pace and this zone. And then my hard workouts at this pace and this zone and realize that we're, we're slightly shifting the stimulus a little bit as, you know, John and I have said to embarrass the body in a little bit of different ways so that, Sometimes we work on that delivery mechanism. Sometimes we work on getting a bigger bucket to carry. Sometimes we work on making sure it's going to the right house. And the only way we kind of do that is by varying up the training stimulus uh, with the workouts we do. Yeah, this is, again, it alleviates us and handcuffs us from that burden of thinking there's only one pathway and it's this kind of like slower paced running and a lots of it still the name of the game is exposure right the more you can expose the body to a stimulus and the more it can process and handle it the more learning and reinforcement is going to get from that stimulus however we always in endurance world we over index on the metabolism and physiology and forget about the mechanical burden so if i'm asking an athlete who does not say have the mechanical profile to let's say of our 800 meter runners right I'm asking a springy, you know, poppy, however you want a fast twitch oriented athlete that is saying, okay, you need to run 14 miles because we got to get this aerobic stimulus in because we got to get the mitochondria up. We got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. And they break down repeatedly because their mechanics aren't suited for that. And you're not working on that or graduating them to teach them that. And it's just like, oh, they keep getting hurt with all this miles, but miles is the only way that's da, 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 da. You tell yourself the story. And that then impacts and uh, retards the athlete's development and progress because they're, they don't have the mechanical ability to endure that chronic loading step after step after step. That's okay. We now got another way to do it, right? So rather than having this 800 meter runner go run 14 miles, you're like, oh, great. Here's what you can do. They're going to go run 14 miles. You will probably do like say an eight mile type volume session, but the first two miles we warm up. And then for the next four miles, you're going to flux back and forth between this and that. And you can take a standing rest and walk every, you know, six minutes after this, this flux um, training and then uh, style work. And you're going to do that four or five times. And then you do, do like a mile cool down jog. And guess what? They got the desired stimulus and lactate shuttling because you understood a different solution that was individualized or athlete specific that they could benefit from versus saying, 
All I got is one bullet, and it's called high volume, how many miles you're running. That's the only way to Rome, and that's it. We know time and time again, multiple roads to Rome, and this gives the enlightened coach, and this gives you know the coach who's on, walking the same street as the athletes, trying to get better, another pathway to get to a similar destination. Love it. I think that's a, a wonderful summary of this episode, which is don't cut off paths. You know, yeah. essentially it's like, don't cut off the paths. You know, we do that way too often. Instead, realize that there are multiple paths. The science is backing that up, that, you know, it's always a little more complex than we understand. So if someone tells you that, you know, this workout only works at this pace, and if you violate this pace, like you've ruined everything, body doesn't work that way, man. Yeah. Well, and that's the beautiful thing. Like, Every year, the workouts should change, right? And every year, because the coach changes and the athlete changes, to say, I had success with these, and I see it all the time, right? Especially in college. There's athletes who are really good in high school, where the, maybe the competitive stakes was a lot lower, and they were champions because there are so many more classifications, and they get to college or even post-collegially. And they go, oh, I just got to go back to what worked for me two, three years ago. But it's this rule and there's a law like what got you here won't get you there. And elements of it can be incorporated. Correct. And we talked about in different, you know, the not uh, the novelty of training stimuli and how that fluctuates. Everything we see with Mother Nature is about flux. This is why we name flux training flux training is because we have now this glycogen concept of flux, this like gly- uh, lactate flux. It's all flux and we have to get you know, comfortable with the flux. And if we don't get comfortable with that and how there's going to be some upgrades and there's going to be some pivots year in and year out, then we've handcuffed ourselves and handcuffed the athletes. If we just treat it as, Hey, we're just going to teach you the textbook. Every year it's the same lesson plan, same textbook. But the fun part is in the day and age we live in, which is so freaking exciting. The textbooks being updated all the time. (laughs) So now we have to change the curriculum and it's not like total overhaul and throw everything out. It's just slight little mutations and upgrades and adaptations. Again, walking the same street as an athlete, we now upgrade how we coach and what we do and what we offer based on our awareness, right? Like this is why I say deep squats for everybody squat every day. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And if your only concept is the bodybuilding heavy and hard all the time, it doesn't make sense. But if you're, our body weight deep squatting just to create that loading in the joint capsules and the cartilage and the connective tissue to infuse this nutrition in there. Cool. That's awesome. It has value right now. Sometimes you might put on a heavy load. Great. That has different value as well in multiple streams of value, but that's where we have to see the multidimensional spectrum of value of movement as a practice in coaching and training. Love it. I think you're you're spot on. Diversity of experience, diversity of training. Don't throw things away. And these are hard topics, right? To wrap our head around, think about. And there is a place out there in the world, digitally, now that we can all collaborate, communicate, and explore this. And it's so awesome to see high school coaches, college coaches, you know, uh, private coaches coming through and trying to work through these concepts and workshop them in real time with their peers and get an answer, right? Not just from me or Steve, but from 300 and almost 50 others. That's right. Where's that place, Steve? Where is that? Join the scholar program, the scholar clubhouse. 
one-stop shop for everything you need as a coach. You want diversity of experience and stimulating ideas and to wrestle with some of the topics we talked about. If you're saying, hey, I'm a little bit confused. I don't know how this applies. Well, guess what? You know where we put this article first? The Scholar Clubhouse. Yeah, that's where Steve dropped it. I was like, oh, got to print this out and read it. <laughs> so that's where everything John and I come across that is interesting. It goes first. We we drop it in the clubhouse because that's that's what we do and others do it as well. So Yeah, and honestly, I haven't been as active on Twitter in the past several months. Why? Because I'm just like, no, F it. I'm just going to put it on the clubhouse because, you know, that's where the gold goes, right? And every now and again, I'll tweet something out. But you you see, like, I'm getting my fix from the clubhouse, man. It's better than Twitter. And the important thing I want to reference, too, is there's a book out called, um, you know, written about a decade ago called Connected, right, which looks at connections of humans and think of it as like nodes, right? And it's not just about what you do. And it's not just about what those close to you do. It's what's close to the people that you're close to do that influence you as well. It's how we're all connected. So the way to think about it is six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Or I like to think about the three to six degrees of your friends. So if your third or fourth or fifth degree of your friend is doing this, it is going to have an impact and influence on you because we are that connected in our social networks. So the fact that you're a scholar then positively impacts all your friends and they become a scholar and then so on and so forth down the chain. That's how we get better. This is why Steve and I have this amazing passion and energy for it, because we know that if one of us gets better, a lot of us get better. And if a lot more of us get better, a whole bunch of us get better. Exactly. So love it. Come get better. That's my message to you. So come get better. How do you get better? You join us. So thanks again for listening, everybody. Hopefully this deep dive into the science is interesting. We'd suggest and recommend all you guys check out the Brooks paper. Fascinating read. And thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Until next time, everybody. Take care. Good coaching.